It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. I'm so excited that you are listening in today. You may have been, well, eagerly awaiting because you know that last week we had a very special guest on the program, Bill Federer, who's an author of more than 20 books. He is the, the really the face, the voice behind the American Minute, teaching generations about America's rich history, its Judeo-Christian history, giving us an understanding of biblical history, not that it's hermetically sealed on its own, but it is very much a part of America's history, and he gives us great detail, understanding, and insight into that. And so last week, you got a fire hose of information about how world events have positioned us for really the foundation of America. And you have probably been anxiously anticipating today's broadcast, and I'm glad that you did because Bill is back with us. Bill, welcome back to Engage in Truth. Thank you, John. So last week, we you just sort of ended up with the beginning of the Reformation period. But for those who are tuning in maybe for the first time, they didn't get a chance to listen to last week. And I'm going to talk to you just for a moment. Those of you listening, you can go to calvaryfountain.com to hear last week's program. But Bill, could you just take a few minutes just to recap a little bit about where your journey was taking us so that those who were listening in, they're anxiously anticipating what you're going to say next. So recap that for us a little bit. Well, we're talking about how unique America is in world history and sort of tracing a couple threads that uh, led to our founding. Uh, One was Islam, and people forget that Egypt used to be Christian for six centuries, evangelized by Mark until the Muslims invaded and conquered. Syria used to be Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul until the Muslims conquered it. Jerusalem used to be Christian until Caliph Umar conquered it. There used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa until the Umayyad Muslims conquered it. Then they invaded Spain in the year 711 and held it for 700 years, Hmm. conquered southern France, finally stopped outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours by Charles Martel, the grandfather of Charlemagne. That was the first Arab Spring, went from the Persian Gulf to the Atlantic Ocean within just 100 years of Muhammad's death. And then they come around the other side, and they have a Turkish Spring. And the Seljuk Turks, the Ottoman Turks, invade into what is today Turkey, um, but all seven churches mentioned in the Book of Revelation were wiped out by the Turks. And uh, But the Greek Christians begged the West for help. The West sends help. It's called the uh, Crusades, nine major Crusades in 200 years. Uh, an important distinction, people say, well, you know, Christians kill people during the Crusades. Muslims kill people. It's all sort of a wash. Every religion has crazies that kill people. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is let's compare the founders. Hmm. Right? If your computer acts up, what do you do? Uh, you reload the software the way it was when you bought it. Well, if your religion acts up, what do you do? You go back to the way it was when it left the founder, right? Hmm. The software programmer, the one that they created. And so let's compare the founders. Uh, the largest religion in the world is Christianity. About 33% of the world identifies itself as Christian, 33%. 22% of the world identifies itself as Islam, 16% unaffiliated, 15% Hindu, 7% Buddhist, down to 0.2% Jewish. So let's compare the, the founders of the two largest religions in the world, Jesus and Muhammad. Jesus never killed anybody. Muhammad killed an estimated 3,000 people, including cutting off the heads of 700 Jews in Medina. Jesus never married. Muhammad had anywhere from 11 to 22 wives, slave wives, concubines. The youngest wife, Aisha, was six years old when he married her. Um, Jesus never tortured anyone. 
When Muhammad conquered Kaibar, the last Jewish settlement in Arabia, he stretched the Jewish chief out on the ground, kindled a fire on his chest because he wouldn't tell where the tribe's treasure was hidden. Hmm. Jesus did not allow his disciples to rape anyone. Duh, Muhammad did. And there's always hadiths that talk about how to do it. Uh, Jesus uh, was never a governor or a general. Every one of the caliphs was governors or generals. Jesus forgave insults. Dying on the cross saying, Father, forgive him. Muhammad avenged insults. A guy named Ibn Qatal made up poems making fun of Muhammad, had his slave girls reciting the poems, and so Muhammad ordered them murdered. So the idea of if you, if you insult the prophet, you get killed, goes all the way back to the prophet. Hmm. Uh, Jesus never forced anyone to follow him. Said something difficult, many disciples walked with him no more. If you read the context, he had just multiplied the loaves and the fishes, and people were following him for a free lunch, and he sort of said something difficult on purpose to see if he could shake him away. You know, and Peter says, I don't understand what you said, but you're the only one with the words of eternal life, so I'm with you. Um, <laughs> Mohammed said, whoever changes his Islamic religion, kill him. You're free to join, you just can't leave, sort of like Hotel California. Um, Jesus uh, called God our Father. In Islam, it's blasphemy to call Allah your Father. Jesus taught we're children of God. In Islam, it's blasphemy to call yourself a child of Allah, because Allah took no wife and has no son. Jesus taught we're made in the image of God. In Islam, Allah has no image. Jesus taught to have a personal relationship with God. Go in the closet and pray you and him. In Islam, it's blasphemy to even want to have a personal relationship with Allah because he is transcendent and unknowable. Hmm. The first three centuries of Christianity, uh, there were ten major persecutions. Christians were thrown to the lions. They never led an armed resistance against the Roman emperor. The first three centuries of Islam, they conquered from Arabia to Paris in a military campaign. And so the idea of Christianity is God is love, and because he's love, he wants you to love him back. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh. But love, by definition, has to be voluntary. And so it's not like submission where you submit or I chop your head off. No, he's interested in your heart and your mind, voluntarily deciding to respond to him in love. And so, since it, so for love to be love, it has to be voluntary. God respects your free will. He puts the tree in the garden, says, Adam and Eve, don't eat from it, but it's your choice. Gives Moses the law, saying, here's the blessings, here's the cursings. Please choose life, children of Israel, right? But it's your choice. So he's into, he can lead the horse to the water, but he can't make it drink. He, he wants to, so he has positive and negative motivations to get us to respond to him. But he'll never force our will. And so he has plan A and plan B. Plan A is he blesses us so much, we turn to him out of gratefulness. If that doesn't work, there's plan B. He withholds the blessings, and we turn to him out of desperation. But the whole thing is based on him respecting our free will, because for a love response, for it to be love, it must be. So it creates this whole Judeo-Christian concept of freedom of conscience, that your worship of God is only of value if it's freely given. Mm. Not so in Islam. You can be forced on pain of death. I talked to a Muslim who had become a Christian, he has a Elijah Abraham. He has a livingoasis.org ministries. And he said if they got rid of the riddle laws, where if you leave Islam, any Muslim can kill you, uh, so you're always looking over your shoulder. He said if they got rid of the riddle laws, 90% of Muslims would leave overnight. Hmm. There was another Muslim imam in Egypt uh, not too long ago said if they got rid of the riddle laws, Islam would have stopped with Muhammad. <laughs> wow. hmm. And so it's a religion based on the fear that if you leave, your own family will kill you. And, uh, and, but not so in Christianity. Christianity is based on this concept that God is love, and as a result, he wants you to respond in love, and for love to be love, it has to be voluntary. 
Anyway, I've sort of gotten a little theological, but back to the, the train of thought with Muhammad. So the Muslims conquer, and they're conquering, and they surround Vienna, Austria in 1529. A hundred thousand Muslims are surrounding Vienna. And uh, the Holy Roman Emperor is named Charles V of Spain. And so you got the Muslim Sultan on one side, Suleiman the Magnificent. He controls North Africa, Egypt, the Middle East, into Turkey, and and then the the other side is this Catholic Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V of Spain. He controls Spain, Austria, Spanish Netherlands, the New World, the Philippines are named after his son, King Philip of Spain. So we have these two kings. So the most common form of government in the world is kings, and now we've got these two most powerful kings battling it out. Martin Luther says, the Turk is the rod of the wrath of the Lord our God. If the Turk's God, the devil is not beaten first. There is reason to fear the Turk will not be so easy to beat. Uh, John Calvin said, I hear the sad condition of your Germany. The Turk again prepares to wage war with a larger force. John Wesley later said, ever since the religion of Islam appeared in the world, the spousers of it have been as wolves and tigers to all other nations. Anyway, so Charles V of Spain is faced with a double dilemma. Protestant Reformation on one hand, Muslim invasion on the other hand. And so he decides to strike a deal with the Protestants. It's the very first treaty ever to recognize Protestants. It's called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. And it has this little Latin phrase that had huge repercussions. What was this phrase? Cuius regio, eus religio, which means whose is the reign, his is the religion. In other words, look, Protestant king, believe whatever you want in your kingdom. Let's just work together against these Muslims that are invading Europe because they want to kill us all. And so, in the next century, it led to a domino effect where the different kings did believe different things. Northern Germany and Sweden, Lutheran. Switzerland, Calvinist. Scotland, Presbyterian. Holland, Dutch Reformed. England, Anglican. Uh, Greece was Greek Orthodox. Russia was Russian Orthodox. And, of course, Italy, Spain, France, Austria, Poland remained Catholic. But it was this situation in Europe where... Whatever the king believed, the kingdom had to believe, and it was one Christian denomination per country in Europe. And if you did not believe the way your king did, you were persecuted and you fled. And so these Christians, believing the freedom of conscience, that your worship of God is only of value if it's freely given, they said, we can't be forced to worship contrary to our conscience, so we're going to flee. And so there was this mass migration of Christians shifting around Europe in the 1600s simply for conscience sake, those were the ones that spilled over and founded colonies in America. Mm. And so I read through every charter of every colony, and every colony was started by a different Christian denomination. Virginia was Anglican, Massachusetts was Puritan, Rhode Island was Baptist, New York was Dutch Reformed, Delaware and New Jersey were originally Swedish Lutheran, and then Pennsylvania Quaker, Connecticut and New Hampshire Congregationalist. Maryland Catholic, and they did not get along, and they would chase each other out of each other's colonies, very similar to Europe, where they'd be chased out of each other's countries. But then the Revolutionary War started, and they all had to work together against the King of England because he wanted to take away all their rights. After the Revolution, their attitude was, we may not agree on religion all the time, but you were willing to fight and die for my freedom. I need to let you practice your faith. So they began to tolerate each other. First Protestants... In 1776, 98% of America was Protestant. Catholics were only allowed in three colonies, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and they didn't even have full rights in those. So out of a country of 3 million, you had maybe 30,000 Catholics, and you had only 1,500 Jews, like a half of a percent. And there was only seven synagogues in the whole country. 
And so the country was predominantly Protestant, but it was 100% Judeo-Christian. And I read through every state constitution. The original constitution for nine states required you to be a Protestant Christian to hold state office. I mean, here's South Carolina's 1778 constitution. The Christian Protestant religion is hereby deemed the established religion of this state. Hmm. I've actually talked to lawyers that said, well, if they wanted to be a Christian nation, why didn't they just say so in the Constitution? I go, duh, they did. The state constitutions, did you read them? <laughs> the Christian <laughs> Protestant religion shall be deemed the established religion of this. I think they established it in South Carolina. And, and then you read, you know, North Carolina, you had to be a Protestant to hold office. And, and then three states were a little more liberal. Uh, Maryland said all you had to do was be a Christian. Ben Franklin signed Pennsylvania's Constitution that said all he had to do was believe in the divine inspiration of the Old and New Testament. Um, in other words, you not only had to lay your hand on a Bible, you had to swear you believed in the Bible. But the most liberal state was the most evangelical, Rhode Island, founded by Baptists. It had zero religious requirements to hold state office. They said that if you required someone to be a Christian, they could pretend they were just to get elected, and that would be hypocritical. <laughs> Could you imagine someone pretending they're Christian just to get elected? I can't hmm. imagine. <laughs> and then there was an Irish potato famine in the early 1800s, and millions of Irish Catholics came to America. There was a big backlash against them. But after a while, it settled down, and many states changed their constitutions to saying Protestant to just being Christian. Then there was a persecution of Jews in Bavaria. A quarter million Ashkenazic Jews come across. And in Maryland, 1851, they changed their constitution to say every officeholder had to be a Christian, or if the party shall profess to be a Jew, the declaration shall be of a belief in a future state of rewards and punishments. And then you got North Carolina. You had to be a Protestant until 1835. Then you had to be a Christian up until 1868. Then after that, all you had to do was believe in God. You could not hold office in the state of North Carolina, prior to 1868, unless you were a Christian. It's right there in their state constitution. Hmm. And people say, well, how can they do that with separation of church and state? Easy. All the First Amendment was, was to tie the federal government's hands to keep it out of state and church business. Who hmm. does it limit? Congress shall make no law. Uh, I think that means the federal Congress. Congress shall what? Make no law. That means debate and introduce and vote on a bill that has to do with religion. Congress shall make no law respecting. What does respecting mean? It means neither for nor against. So it means they can't before. It's in other words, hands off. When the subject of religion comes before the federal government, it's hands off. Huh. And by, by Im implication, it also would mean the federal, the federal courts cannot make law. Now, back then, they didn't understand uh, this movement of legislating from the bench where these judges would make a, effectively make a law from their bench. And so uh, if they would have understood that, they would have said, Congress and the courts shall make no law, make no law respecting an establishment. Establishment was a clearly understood term. Because that's what every country in Europe had and many of the colonies had. Establishment meant three things. Mandatory membership. Everybody in Virginia had to be an Anglican. If not, you were a dissenter and you were persecuted. Mandatory, mandatory taxes. Everybody in Virginia had to pay taxes to the state government, and the pastors were paid by the government, <laughs> which is still the way they do it in Germany today. You get a job in Germany, the government withholds the tithe and pays the pastors. All the younger generation realize they can give themselves a raise just by checking the atheist box, you know. Um, <laughs> so you go from uh, mandatory membership, mandatory taxes, and you could not hold office in Virginia unless you were an Anglican, you had to take the oath of supremacy, acknowledging the king as the head of the, earth, of the church. And so that was the establishment. The establishment was not acknowledging 
acknowledging God and having God on some structure, that's not establishing a denomination with a structure, with a hierarchy, with spiritual courts, with a staff structure, with, you know, they simply didn't want one particular denomination to set up its headquarters in the White House. That's what the, the First Amendment was. It was not mm-hmm. to have this purge where you go through and tell a coach he can't bow his head while the kids are saying a prayer on the field. I mean, it's ridiculous. Anyway, so I talked about the Christian founding of America. So in New England, it was unique in world history. You had pastors and churches founding communities. And so you had the Puritans and uh, founding Massachusetts. There was a Reverend John Cotton. You had a Reverend John Lothrop in his church founded Barnstable, Massachusetts. A Reverend Roger Williams in his church founded Providence, Rhode Island. A Reverend Thomas Hooker in his church founded Hartford, Connecticut. Here's a pastor, does a sermon, and they write the sermon down, and it turns into the fundamental constitution of Connecticut. His very sermon uh, was turned into, the, and, and Connecticut got known as the Constitution State. <laughs> and so in New England, it was not separation of church and state. It was the church that created the state. <laughs> it was wow. pastors and their churches going on uh, to chop down some trees, make friends with the Indians, and they set up their little church, and the people go to the pastor, and they say, well, how do we do this government thing? And the pastors would dig through the scriptures and tell them. Calvin Coolidge writes in 1926, the principles which went into the Declaration of Independence are found in the sermons of the early colonial clergy. They preached equality because they believed in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. In order that they might have freedom to express these thoughts and opportunities to put them in action, whole congregations with their pastors migrated to the colonies. Now, the pastors held two different views. One was a Calvinist Puritan view that said, God has a plan for your life, your marriage, your family, your, and your church, and your government. Dig mm-hmm. and find out what the plan is and follow it. There was another view called Pietists. Who were they? A little background. Uh, Martin Luther had his revelation that just shall live by faith. It was very personal to him. And some Lutheran princes wanted to break away from Rome, and they said, Kingdom of mine, you are now Lutheran. And a if you don't like it, leave. <laughs> and a bunch of people left, but a bunch stayed, and they said, okay, okay, we're Lutheran. Well, what do we believe again? And so for the people in those kingdoms, it was not necessarily a personal experience. And so a revival movement started called Pietism. They said, look, it's not just following some doctrine. You have to have a personal experience with Jesus. And when you do, your life should change. And you'll no longer do worldly things and hang around worldly people in bars and theaters and brothels and in government. What? <laughs> yeah, and so this is the beginning of separation of church and state, hmm. right? So you have one group of pastors saying, hey, God's got a plan, put it in place. The other's got, oh, no, no, the government has worldly people there, so you shouldn't be around them, so don't get involved in government. Uh-huh. And um, wow. anyway, it's best illustrated by two pastors, the Mullenberg brothers. They were pietist Lutherans, and the one, John Peter, Here's Patrick Henry's speech, and he goes to Washington, said, I want to help. Washington said, fine, you're a colonel, go get your men. And he has a church service, and there's an altar call, and 300, of his, 300 men of his church come forward and become the 8th Virginia Regiment, and he ends up getting elected to Congress afterwards. <laughs> his brother is a pietist Lutheran pastor in New York, Frederick Mullenberg, and he writes letters to John Peter saying, you've become too involved in manners, which is a preacher, you have nothing whatsoever to do. And then John Peter writes back and accuses him of being a Tory sympathizer. Frederick writes back, says he could not serve two masters. And then the British invade New York, burn Frederick's church, and his wife and kids have to flee. He decides, maybe we do need to get involved. He Hmm. ends up getting elected to Congress, and he's the first Speaker of the House. 
Hmm. And what happens in that first session of Congress? They pass the First Amendment, and it's signed by Frederick Augustus Mullenberg, this Lutheran pastor. Does anybody honestly think that these two pastors would vote to outlaw themselves? <laughs> would they say the First Amendment is to keep people of faith out of government when we were people of faith and we did get involved in government? Anyway, so mm. in New England, that's where the miracle uh, took place. The pastors realized that the kingdom of God could never be forced from the top down. These people came from Europe where kings were forcing people to believe, and they were like, look, we can't see where Jesus forced anybody to follow him. And so if it cannot be forced from the top down, how's it going to happen? They thought if the majority of the people held godly values and voted for representatives that had those values, then laws would be passed reflecting those values, and the values of the kingdom of God could come from the bottom up, not forced from the top down. And so it was this model. Does power flow from the creator to the king, and he dispenses it to the people as God's divinely appointed lieutenant? Or does power flow from the king directly to the people, and they choose their leaders from amongst themselves, sort of bypassing the king? Hmm. And so that was the model that they chose, of creator to the people. Uh, and then, So anyway, where did the wow. pastors get this idea? Ultimately, they looked to the Roman Republic, the Athenian democracy, but ultimately they looked to Israel. And Israel is the first nation that we have record of that rule itself without a king. When they come out of Egypt around 1500 B.C., they go into the Promised Land, and for those first 400 years, no king. Everyone is equal before the law, and the law said there is no respect of persons in judgment. Um, I could go on more about Israel, how they were the first nation with private land ownership. Uh, they, you know, all those surveys where they divided up the land in Egypt. Uh, you can only own the land if you're friends with the king. Um, Israel had no standing army. Where if there's a king, he has an army to enforce his will, and, and in Israel, every man uh, was in the militia. Hmm. But Israel's system worked as long as the priest taught the law. When the priest stopped teaching the law, every man did what was right in their own eyes, and the whole thing fell apart. Right. And so we see it's a spectrum of power. One side's total government, the other side's no government. Total government, you get a king, no government is anarchy, right. unless the people have internal morals. But why are you motivated to follow these internal morals? We all have this selfish nature. Why would we want to deny ourselves? Well, Israel had the key ingredient, a God who was watching everyone. He wants you to be fair, and he's going to hold you accountable. Amen. So you're about to steal something, you know you can get away with it, and then you think, wait a second, God is watching. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And mm -hmm. it creates something in your head called a conscience. So if everybody in the country believes God is watching, he wants me to be fair, he's going to hold me accountable, everybody self-modifies their behavior, and they're motivated to follow these laws, and you can have complete order in society without any policemen following everybody around. <laughs> but you get rid of this God, then you just have these morals. Well, why follow them? Some are going to get around it and break windows and smash you know, buildings and set things on fire, and then the people are going to say, government, please come in with your militarized police and your armored personnel carriers, and they'll come in and go house to house and collect everybody's guns, and yeah, they'll restore order, but when the dust settles, you'll have just given up ruling yourself, and you'll be back to a king. Mm -hmm. So the, a form of government without a king only works if the people have internal morals. And um, mm -hmm. anyway, I could go through oh. more of that, but our founders in America looked back to Israel an example, couple great quotes. John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, said that the people are the king in America. The people are the sovereign of this country. Uh, James Wilson signed the Constitution. He says, sovereignty resides in the people. They've not parted with it. Uh, he says, a free 
country. Every citizen forms a part of the sovereign power. He possesses a vote. Abraham Lincoln said, the people of these United States are the rightful masters of both Congresses and courts. And so when you can imagine, if the people are the king, imagine you're visiting a king, maybe an Old Testament, and you're going through the streets of Jerusalem and you see murders and crimes and you get into the king's chamber and he has his head in his hand and he looks at you and says, I wish somebody would fix this mess. And you like reach over, tap him on the shoulder, say, excuse me, you're the king. You're the one accountable to God to fix this mess. That's like somebody in America listening to the radio and or the TV and seeing all kinds of terrible things happening. Saying, I wish somebody would get elected and fix this mess. Hello, reach through the radio and reach through the TV tube and tap you on the shoulder. You are the king. The politicians are your servants. You are the one accountable to God to fix this mess. You don't just have the privilege of voting in America. You will be held accountable to God for what happens in America. So you have two type of pastors. One says, hey, stay asleep. And the other says, throws a bucket of ice water on his congregation. and says, wake up, you're the king. That's I'm reminded right. of that scene in the, in the Lord of the Rings where there's a king, and he's got this spell cast on him, he's got gray hair, gray eyes, and he's like out of it, and he has one counselor named Wormtongue that says, stay asleep, don't get involved. And then in <laughs> Gandalf, because a good counselor comes in and casts the devil out of him and sort of wakes up in front of the screen. You see him getting younger, and his eyes get clear. He says, dark have been my dreams of late. It's like, yeah, you've been <laughs> asleep. And so Time to wake up. And so that's what you're doing, John, and that's what uh, different pastors are waking up saying, no, we've got to tell the king that when you go into your congregation, speak to the, the congregation, they are the king, and they don't just have the privilege of voting, they will be held accountable to God for what happens to them. You think, well, what should I, should I do? Ask God. He's got a different plan for everybody. It's God, you, and then your representatives. So you should, don't sit around waiting for somebody to tell you what to do. You ask him what you're supposed to do. That's right. And you've got to get involved. You've got to get out there and vote. We have this opportunities before us. It's a power that's been given to us. Many have died for those freedoms. We take it for granted all the time, and we know we can get out there and vote, but we can also pray, pray with passion and persistence, praying for our leaders. I know Daniel chapters 10 to 12 talk about evil spirits that are even there assigned by the enemy to to manipulate our leaders, and so they need the prayers of God's people to combat that. We have got to be intentional on our knees before Almighty God, seeking His will and His his efforts, his his work to surround our leaders with advisors and knowledge and wisdom, discernment, understanding that only comes of God's people, Second Chronicles seven fourteen, give themselves wholly devotedly to prayer, seeking restoration in our land. And Bill, I got to thank you for being on our program. It is amazing how fast the time goes. And I got to thank everyone who's listened in. I know that we could probably do two more broadcasts on this. So Bill, we're going to have to have you back again sometime. Thanks for being on Engage in Truth, my friend. Thank you, John. And for those of you who want to listen in to this program, you, you just took the fire hose of information and you want to listen to last week's program. It's a Calvary Fountain. Again, that's calvaryfountain.com. We'll see you next week. God bless.